So we ask that you would attend to us as we attend to your word, that your Holy Spirit might be among your people at the hearing of your word read and preached, that we might not leave here unchanged, but that you might grab hold of us and speak to us and encourage us and convict us and build us up. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus went back up to heaven, he knew that following him was going to be different than it had before. No longer would his disciples be able to relate to him face to face over a meal, walking on the dusty roads of ancient Israel. He knew it was going to be hard to follow him with all the pressures and distractions of the world. He knew that his disciples would experience doubt and discouragement and persecution. He knew that they would long for his presence, his word, his help, and to experience his love. And so Jesus said to his disciples in John, as he was preparing to leave and their relationship was going to change for him, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. And he called the Holy Spirit this comforter, this helper. The Holy Spirit would be given to us to, to guide, to remind us of the truth, to lead us into all truth. And part of the Spirit's work, that first generation or so after Jesus went back up to heaven, was to get the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles written down. So that 2,000 years later, a disciple in Charlotte, or in Kigali, or in Beijing, could follow and give his life or her life to the same teaching that the apostles had. So we are not alone. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, living amongst us as the church. We have the scriptures which are inspired and given to us faithfully, truthfully written down, accurately written down. We can trust what we have in the scriptures. But that's not all that Jesus left us. He also gave us something else, a tangible gift through which we could physically experience His presence and His love. He gave us this symbolic picture that we would do over and over to be reminded of what He did for us. It's also a spiritual delivery system. In a way, we can't fully understand. It takes the grace of God and it gets us in, it into us, into our heart. Well, we call these two gifts that were given by Jesus sacraments. We believe that he directly instituted two of them, baptism and communion. Today is a special day because we get to do both sacraments of the church. Communion we celebrate most every Sunday in our tradition, but baptism we experience less often. But today we get to baptize four children some of the children are a bit older, and they've begun to understand their faith and confess it for themselves. Others are younger and cannot yet articulate their faith. But in our tradition in the Anglican Church, we baptize young children because we believe that God looks upon the covenant family. In the Old Testament, God's people uh, took the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, and they applied it to their infant boys in that case. We believe that the same logic applies with the New Testament sign of the covenant 
I mean, she is the star of the show, so she can <laughs> stay and talk if she wants. So we have this New Testament sign, no longer circumcision, now baptism. And it, it made sense in the logic of the early Christians. We think that they would say, well, let's continue to apply that to the children of believing families. In Acts chapter 2, we have Peter saying to the people in this great moment, many are turning to faith. He says, they say, what shall we do? And he says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children. And so we believe that we should raise our children as Christians, already part of the body of Christ, but still learning the faith for themselves as they grow. We believe that God looks upon the faith of a child's parent or parents, that the parent's faith in some way stands in for the child's until his or hers is fully formed. I don't think, however, we should assume that a child doesn't have any faith or doesn't have any way of relating to God. No, they are not able to intellectually grasp it and confess it in the same way. But do we really believe that the God of the universe is not able to communicate and have a relationship of some sort with a child? Do we not have in the scriptures that the unborn John the Baptist, when he came into the presence of Jesus Christ, that he leapt in the womb, that he could understand in some way and relate to the presence of Jesus? And so we don't really know, but there may already be elements of faith or a relationship with God even in young children. But when we bring a child to be baptized, we do so in hope that the faith will take root, will fully form in them, will grow to maturity. In our tradition, we also have a sort of follow-up to baptism, which is called confirmation. Uh, next Sunday, some of our youth and some adults will be confirmed. And that's a chance for them to have learned the faith, learned the basics, and say, yes, this is my faith too. I will confess it publicly and commit to following Jesus. This morning, I want to reflect on hope that we experience and see in baptism. If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them to Psalm 119, our psalm for the day. It's a very long psalm. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. It may seem like a strange text for a baptism, uh, but I think this psalm actually paints a wonderful picture of what we hope our children will grow into. It paints a mature faith. And so I think we can apply it not only to children, but also to ourselves. What does it look like for us? as we walk out our faith? Can the things we're going to look at, can it describe our adult faith as well? You may know that Psalm 119 is all about God's Word, God's law. It's this ongoing reflection, verse after verse. And the psalmist is going to use many different terms to describe God's Word and law. He calls it law, he calls it word, commandments, statutes, testimony, precepts, rules, it's best that we understand these terms very broadly, uh, not just a particular narrow part of God's law, not just the first five books of the Bible, but all of God's teaching, all of the law and the prophets, everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Another thing you'll notice if you read through Psalm 119 is that the writer is incredibly taken with God's law. It's fair to say that he's gushing over it. He's praising it. He's enamored with it. 
This seems a little strange to me at first. Speaking for myself, I respect God's law and commandments. I, I try to follow them. But I can't honestly say that I'm over the moon for them. Uh, they're not the thing that, that melts my heart into praise and thanksgiving. But they were for this person who wrote down this psalm. Well, why was that? You see, he wrote this love song to God. That's really what it is if you read through it. But he's not just expressing his love for some dry teaching or law. What he had of God's word, what he had of God's law, that's how God had revealed himself. That's what he had of God. That's how he knew who God was and his character and his goodness. And so he praised it and he loved it and he savored it. It's a little different for us as Christians because we live on this side of Christmas where the word of God, all that God wanted to say and communicate was actually put into flesh in a human being. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The psalmist didn't have that yet. All he had was the law and the prophets, but it was enough to bring him to his knees in adoration. But I think for us, if you go through Psalm 119, I think you can rightly apply the Word made flesh to a lot of what you're reading there that our affections would be so stirred, that we would be so enamored, that we would gush over what God has communicated to us, not only in the Bible, but also in the person of Jesus. So if that's helpful, use that as an interpretive lens when you walk through this psalm. Let's take a look at the first 16 verses or so and see the picture that they paint of a fully formed faith, this mature faith that we hope and pray for on behalf of those we baptize and that we hope for ourselves as well. The psalm begins with these words, verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It's like a summary verse for the whole psalm. It's actually very similar to the summary verse for the whole Psalter, Psalm 1, verse 1, about blamelessness and, and walking in God's way. Then as now, people in the world followed the inclinations of their own heart to find happiness, to make life meaningful. And many would exclude God from that altogether. Say, we'll figure this out. We'll follow other gods. We'll make life work on our own. Right from the get-go, we're told that's not a blessed life. That's not how life works best. The blessed person does life God's way. The blessed person realizes that every other path is going to lead to emptiness and despair and destruction. And so that's the foundational hope we, we claim for these children is that they would find God's way of life for themselves. From their earliest days, they would embrace his view of reality and seek out his path. That is wisdom. That is the way of the blessed life. Well, how do they do that? How do we do that? Once we find God's path, then how do we stay on it? Well, that's precisely the question that the psalmist is going to ask in verse 9, and specifically he asks it of young people. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? How can a young person, how can a child, how can they stay on the path of purity? The um, question is a good one for us who have been walking with Christ a long time to reflect on. A lot of people 
been following Jesus for a lot of years in this room. Think about it. How, how have you stayed on that path? It's not an easy path. Jesus told us that discipleship, the road is, is narrow. There's so many distractions. There's so many times to stray from it, to fall off, to get discouraged, to fall down. What has helped you stay on the path? If you've wandered, what brought you back? If you've fallen down, what helped you get up again? It's a question for all of us. It's a question we need to talk about ourselves, encourage not only young people in our midst, but encourage each other with. Well, I think the psalmist answers his question in part in the verses that follow, 9 through 16. And his answer really has to do with how does a person treat God's Word? And again, we can apply it to the God's Word written, but also for us to Jesus, the Word made flesh. I want to highlight three approaches to God's Word that are essential for staying on the path towards Christian maturity. If a young person is to grow in their faith, if we want to stay in our faith, we need each of these. So the first approach is that we treasure God's Word. We treasure it. Have you ever noticed that kids at a certain age begin collecting these trinkety little things and storing them in special places? I did that when I was a kid, and now I'm watching my kids do it, and I actually find it kind of annoying because the things that they treasure and collect are, are not things that I think have any value or worth. They, they kind of seem like trash or just stuff that bothers me. Much to my chagrin, the preacher's kids started collecting wine corks and bottle caps. <laughs> Great. Thanks, kids. And they'll take their little treasures and they'll find a little box or a little bag or something and they'll just kind of store it up like little chipmunks storing up acorns. I think there's something that goes on at an early age that, that we, we recognize when we treasure something, we want to store it up. We want to collect it. We want to even want to hide it away that we might delight in it. And I think that's the same that we do even as we grow about God's Word. We recognize that it is a treasure and so we treasure it. Verse 9, the psalmist writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 11, I have stored up or I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. All of these are describing what it means to treasure God's word, to collect it, to store it up, to hide it, to guard it. But where do we do that? in our hearts, in the deepest, most core place of ourselves. We put it there that we might delight in it. You see, if God's Word gets into our hearts, especially at an early age, but any time in life, it has a power there. God said that my, my Word doesn't return void. It accomplishes its purposes. Jesus compared Word to a seed that, that had this power to go from something that looked like nothing into something that was beautiful and fruitful and abundant. That's the thing, I think, that keeps us coming back to Jesus, staying on his path, getting up when we fall down, coming back when we've strayed, is that we've hidden his word in our hearts, that we've treasured it. But there's a second approach to God's word. We are to be teachable. We are to be teachable. In verse 12, the psalmist cries out, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Now, the psalmist clearly already knows some of God's Word, but he also knows what he doesn't know. And he wants to learn more. Knowing God is the cry of his heart. 
You see, teachability is essential for Christian maturity. To be a disciple of Jesus simply means to be learner. That's what the word disciple means. You never graduate from Jesus' school of discipleship. And so if you stop being teachable, if we get to a place and we say, I've learned what there is to learn. I am a mature disciple. By definition, you are not. You have forgotten something. We need to be teachable our whole lives long. One of this beautiful woman in our church, and she passed a year or so ago. Her name was Grace Brown. Uh, many of you know her. One of the, the most defining characteristics of her to me and her mature faith, and anyone would say that is a woman of mature faith, is that she was teachable till the last day of her life. She was still learning more from Jesus, still falling on her knees, still knowing that she didn't get it all. To be teachable, we need curiosity. Curiosity uh, that becomes infatuated with God, that we want to know more about him, that we don't understand his ways, but we, but we want to understand his ways, and so we keep coming to him, and we keep asking questions, and we even wrestle with him as Jacob did, as Job did. When, when things don't seem to line up with his character, we say, what gives God? I'm going to wrestle with you. I want to know more. That's part of teachability, as is humility. We need to know what we don't know. We need to be humble enough to learn from others. Even people who we think are, are below us spiritually, we need to be able to learn from them. And then to be teachable, we need a lot of grace, especially for ourselves. Because to learn anything, whether it's a new sport or painting or discipleship, you have to fail at it a lot. You do have to fall down. You have to get it wrong that you might learn what is right. And so we need to receive the Lord's grace over and over as we learn, as we grow. So to stay on this path towards maturity, we need to treasure God's word. We need to remain teachable. Finally, we must be willing to tell of it. In verse 13, the psalmist says, With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. He treasures it. He, he, he's teachable, but then he tells of it. He can't contain his love for God and his word. Um, I live on a cul-de-sac. Charlotte is a land of cul-de-sacs. And I have learned to like some things about cul-de-sacs. I have young kids, they play in the street, they ride their bikes, don't have to worry quite as much about traffic when you live on a cul-de-sac. There is a nice feeling of, of comfort and security on a cul-de-sac. If, if someone who didn't belong wanted to come into our neighborhood, they would get hopelessly lost in all of the cul-de-sacs. <laughs> and so there's, there's a comfort there. Friends, discipleship is not a cul-de-sac. We don't receive God's word and, and treasure it and learn more of it and then just sit in our cul-de-sac and enjoy it. We are not meant to stay safe. Loving God's word is the riskiest thing we can ever do. If safety and security was our plan, we've picked the wrong treasure. A disciple lives on a thoroughfare, an interstate. We're scattered throughout the world to show and to tell the goodness of God's word and his word made flesh in Jesus. If you were here last week, we considered the identity and the purpose of a disciple. We saw that we are salt, and so naturally we go out, we flavor, and we preserve the world. We are light, and so naturally we go out and we shine in the dark places, in the corners of our cities and our neighborhoods. If we treasure God's word, we naturally tell of it. I think some of this just happens without us knowing. 
simply by putting God's Word in our hearts, simply by learning it and treasuring it, that God will make sure to shine His light through us in our action, in our words, in our attitudes, in the way we carry ourselves in relationships. So be encouraged. There's probably more light coming through you than you realize. But we also have to be willing and be intentional to speak of it, to tell of it. And not just to outsiders, not just in an evangelistic way, that's important, but also to one another. A community that is mature in faith is a community that is dwelling richly with the word of Christ that speaks of it. Paul paints this wonderful picture picture in Colossians 3 of the church. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's who we are, friends. We are people of the word. The word of Christ is living and active among us. We savor it together. We study it. We share what we're learning We encourage and rebuke and remind each other with it. And we sing and we delight in it as we sing and praise God. So if our hope is for our children and for ourselves to grow into maturity in faith, how do we do that? Well, I think it has everything to do with how we treat, how we approach God's Word. We treasure it. We remain teachable our whole lives and we tell of it. We let it come through. That's our hope. That's what we hope for these children. That's what we hope for any of our children, that they would grow up into that. But that's not the only hope of baptism. In fact, I don't even think that is the most foundational hope. I think there's another one. You see, the very first verse of Psalm 119, as as good as it is, it also condemns us. Did you feel that at all when you read it? Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. I don't read that and celebrate because I know I'm not blameless. Are you blameless? If you think you are, you don't know yourself very well. You're not, I'm not, none of us is blameless. And so that blessing that's held out to us, blessed is the one who's blameless, all of a sudden begins to slip through our fingers as we realize we cannot keep the law of the Lord. We cannot follow in the path of his word. That's the story of Israel. The very law, here's the irony, the very law that the the psalmist is, is celebrating is actually a noose around the neck of Israel by which they are choking themselves to death. It becomes a curse. The minute you can't keep God's law, it becomes a curse. They couldn't stay on the blameless path. Over and over they strayed. Over and over they treasured anything besides God who they were to treasure. They didn't follow his plans. They followed their own. There's another psalm that paints a much, much bleaker but perhaps more realistic picture for God's people. Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good Not even one. That's a harsh reality. That's the psalm that Paul picks up on in Romans 3 when he says that all, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter if you had the law or not, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so for parents, and especially the parents who will baptize their children today, 
we know they're going to break our hearts. We know they're going to break God's hearts. We know they're going to sin. They're going to lie. They're going to disobey. They're going to disrespect. They're going to treasure all the wrong things, and they're going to make wrong decisions because the reality of sin is deep. It is inherited. It comes to us even when we are a baby. It is persistent. It is deceptive. And yet we do not despair for one reason. We do not lose heart because of this hope that we see in baptism. It is the hope of the gospel put on display, acted out through water, through what we're about to do in a minute. I think Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, uh, describes this hope of the gospel very well. He says, you are more sinful than you can ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. Baptism tells us both of these truths. Tells us that we are sinful. We are filthy. We need washing. Even an innocent baby is not innocent. Their nature is corrupt. It is sinful. We all need to be cleansed and forgiven. Baptism is this outward sign of this inward washing that the Holy Spirit does. But the stain of sin isn't just on the surface. It's taken hold of us so deeply inside. It's so corrupted our nature so deeply that to be rid of it, something must actually die. Some part of us must be put to death. That's how serious the illness is. And baptism also signifies this. We're told in the New Testament that we are buried with Christ in baptism. We die with him. We're unified to him in his death. And in that death, our sinful nature is killed. Our corrupt, our rebellious nature is nailed to the cross with Jesus. It must be this way. We must die. It is the only way to be free. But it doesn't stop there. Because baptism doesn't just take something away. Our sinful nature, it also gives us something. It gives us the gift of blamelessness. We know that we cannot perfectly follow God's ways. We cannot achieve blamelessness. Left to our own devices, we will never receive that blessedness. But there was one who was blameless in all his ways. He followed God's law perfectly. The spirit of the law, the letter of the law, he fulfilled the law and the prophets. Jesus Christ is the truly righteous one. He is what Israel was called to be. He is true Israel. The one who could hold up his end of the covenant, be declared righteous and beloved by his Father. We can't be blameless, but he is. For us, it was a curse of the law. But in baptism, we receive that gift of Jesus's blamelessness. His righteous life counts for ours. And so that now in him, we can go back to the blessing of verse 1 and appropriate it for ourselves. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Not through our own, but through his, we are now counted blameless, righteous. We get none of the punishment that we deserve and instead get all of the rewards that belong to him. He is now raised up and glorified and seated at the right hand of the Father. And through baptism, we receive that blessing as well. We die with him, we are raised with him. And where are we now? 
The Scriptures tells us that some essential part of our identity, our selves, our true selves, if you like to think about it like that, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And we await this future glorification, this future resurrection of the body and everlasting joy. That's what's held out to us in baptism. His destiny is our destiny. His inheritance is our inheritance. His Father is now our Father. And the Holy Spirit who was given to Him, anointed Him in power, now is given to us and anoints us in power. That's the hope of the gospel. And it's all put on display in baptism. Washed and forgiven, buried and raised, blameless and secure forever. The children are at the door and they're ready to come in and be part of this wonderful thing, but let me just say a word quickly to two groups. There may be some of us here today who have not in some time or have never walked in God's way. You have not counted yourself a disciple of Jesus. That can change today. Today could be the moment, the day where you say, I don't really understand how, but I want to begin to follow in the way of God, in the way of Jesus. I want to treasure the Word of God and the Word made flesh. Maybe you've never been baptized. We can do that. Probably not today, but in the near future where you can receive and appropriate all the promises I just held out. They can be yours. It would take a little courage, but if, if God's stirring your heart that way, and I pray that if at least one person that he is, that, that you would tell someone, maybe someone brought you and you want to tell them. We have a prayer intercessor teams out there during communion. Tell them, let them pray for you. Come talk to me, talk to a friend, but say, God's doing something in my heart. I don't understand it, but I need prayer and I need help. Second, there are those of us who are followers of Jesus. We have been baptized Every time we celebrate a baptism, we are to be reminded and to re-enter and relive our own. Even if you can't remember it, let this sign be for you the sign of rebirth and renewal. Let it be a reminder that you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, but more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope. Let's pray.